Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Welcome to episode 25 of Writer on the Road. I'm just going to take a couple of minutes to do some housekeeping before I introduce my next guest. Next week, starting Monday, I'm running my second Business of Writing mini-series and I've got some great guests lined up for you. So over the five days, we'll be talking about creativity, we'll be talking about niche marketing, we'll be talking about the indie business and how important it is that we get out there and we be professional. We're talking about building our portfolio of writing by using by by using I guess novellas and short pieces to to get our writing out to our readers so they know what we're about. And finally we'll be talking about editing uh, and how important it is as indie writers that we get our work professionally edited. Uh, this week I've got two wonderful ladies from Western Australia. Today we're talking to Rachel Johns and on Thursday we'll be talking to Jenny Jones. Now Rachel coming up next who's waiting very patiently, she is currently the number one rural romance writer in Australia. Uh, Rachel has seen uh, some level of success in the last five years. She's got 20 books to her name and she's winning awards hand over fist. And it's welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. This is take two for Rachel's and my interview. I've got the beautiful Rachel Johns from Perth, who's very, very patiently ready to re-record our interview after 20 minutes of our first interview being lost. So Rachel has a sore throat. She's been eating lots of ice cream. And we're about to start our interview for the second time. So she's a fantastic sport. Uh, Rachel, welcome to Writer on the Road. Thank you, Melinda. I think you're a fantastic sport for putting up with all these technical issues at my end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's raining in Perth, but we don't have those problems here in sunny <laughs> Queensland. So this time I'm going to do the interview correctly. I first because last time I jumped straight into the exciting part, which was Rachel's new book. But we'll start at the beginning. Rachel, would you like to tell us a little bit about your writing career to date, please? Sure. Well, I was never one of those people that desperately wanted to be a writer as a child. Um, I wasn't a huge reader. Uh, apart from the Babysitter's Club books, I read all of them. Uh, but then I was more obsessed with boys in high school than, you know, writing or reading or anything else, really. Um, actually, it was one particular boy. And there's a reason I'm telling you this, because it's because of him that I sort of started writing. Basically, we accidentally broke up at the end of year 12. And I, I thought he was the love of my life, you know, that we were going to get married, have babies, live happily ever after. So I was a bit of a romantic back then. Um, but that didn't happen. I was absolutely heartbroken that for some strange reason I'd started to write our story. It was absolutely rubbish. I wrote 80,000 words of everything we'd ever said to each other, basically from when I was in year nine to when I was in year 12, and that was very boring. For most of that time he didn't even talk to me. I stalked him. Um, and then so I wrote this story and I realised even back then that accidentally dumping someone, which is what happened, was not sort of the right way to end a book. Uh, it wasn't very exciting. So what I did is I gave him a horrific disease and I killed him off. And that was really good therapy for me. I really enjoyed that whole experience of being able to, I suppose, play God with my characters. Um, I, lo I absolutely loved it. So a week before I was due to start primary school teaching, which is something I'd always wanted to do, I decided to change to a writing degree at university. And what happened, well, I, I changed. It wasn't the best decision, I don't think. Uh, that degree, unfortunately, was very early years of, of writing degrees across Australia. And I learned absolutely nothing about writing. Uh, they wanted me to write literary books that might win the Man Booker Prize. I really just wanted to write something like Bridget Jones' Diary because by this stage I had got back into reading uh, and that's the kind of story I wanted. I was really you know, reading all the chiclet books, Marianne Keyes, Lisa Jewell, and I wanted to write like them. But the university lecturers did not want me to write like that. So for years I sort of floundered around not really writing anything because I was writing what I call a weird combination of literary chiclet, which really was not 
nothing, very unmarketable. But apart from the fact that I didn't know my genre, I also knew nothing about conflict and plot, things that you think they should teach you in a writing course at university. Uh, so I struggled for years, uh, and then eventually a friend and I decided that you know this was just going terribly our writing career. We remembered an article that we had read while at university about Mills and Boone books and how there's quite a few people in Australia writing for Mills and Boone and how you can make an absolute packet. And we thought, huh, well, we can do this. We'll just lower our standards because at that stage I'd never read Mills and Boone and I believed them to be – I had the cliched you know, idea of what they are, throbbing manhoods and heaving bosoms and stuff like that. Uh, but that didn't stop me. I thought, I'm going to do this. So I went out and I read about 50 Mills and Boone books in a month. I was pregnant with my second child and I discovered that I actually quite enjoyed most of them. Like any book, you know, some I didn't like, some I did. Uh, and so I decided it was something I really, really wanted to do. And through that, I found Romance Writers of Australia. And that's when I found, when I think things started clicking into place for me. I finally started learning, you know, what makes a good book. Uh, as I said in, my other, in our other interview, I'm a slow learner. It took me 15 years from the decision to start writing a book to finally getting published. But I think, you know, that was an apprenticeship that was necessary. Uh, and so it was through Romance Writers Australia that I started entering contests. I got, came second in them. I got, got, got quite far. Uh, then I won a, well, came second as well in the Mills and Boone Feel the Hot Heat contest in the US, uh, sorry, UK. And I got to work with an editor at Mills and Boone for a couple of years. Now, unfortunately, that didn't work out. Uh, I couldn't quite fit what they wanted. And I was really pretty much ready to give up writing. But another good writing friend of mine, Fiona Palmer, who writes Rural Romance, she just sold her first or second Rural Romance. And Rural Romance wasn't really a thing yet, but it was just really growing. And since then, it's boomed. I'm sure you'll agree. And she said, you know, you live in a small country town. Why not write Rural Romance? And I felt like a bit of a fraud because I'm not a farmer or a farmer's wife. But I decided to give it a shot, focus more on the community um, aspects. And I love the dynamics in small towns of all the people knowing everything about everyone. And that was my first print book that sold. But meanwhile, I got my one of my Mills and Boone rejects, I call it, published by an e-publisher, Karina Press. So things sort of finally, after 15 years, happened pretty quickly close together. That's a really short version. I'm sorry, it's still taken quite a few minutes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Now, Rachel and I have already told each other this story once before. So <laughs> I think that Rachel, keeping it so short and, and rushing through it like she just did, has has given us the bare bones of, of what her career has looked, out, looked like. But she's also been really, really shy. So what I want to introduce to you now is your win, Rachel, at the Australian Book Industry Awards. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that one, please? Sure. So last year, the Patterson Girls, which is my first, I suppose, we call women's fiction title, uh, that won Australian Book Industry of the Year for general in the general fiction category. Uh, when I was first long-listed, I think it was March, I was actually in Sydney when my publisher called and said, you know, your book's been long-listed for the Australian Book Industry of the Year. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, I, I totally I saw the other list of people and they were all such brilliant, fantastic writers, some of them very established. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I thought definitely I won't make the short list, but, hey, this is a great honour to be on the long list. And then we made the short list up against Michael Robotham, Fiona McIntosh and Kate Morton, who are all just, you know, authors I really admire. And I thought, definitely I won't win. But, you know, it was all very exciting. Making the shortlist meant that I get to go to the industry awards. And so that was that was a huge excitement. And then on the night, they called out the Patterson Girls. And it was it was a, the best shock of my life. But I just want to say that that's not just my award. It's definitely a publishing award. I believe that one of the reasons the Patterson Girls won over the other um, very three, three brilliant author and books is because... Harlequin had taken me from a rural romance career into a totally different sort of, not totally different genre, but a different market, and they had marketed that really well. And the, the industry awards, uh, that is an industry thing, and so it's not just on the book, it, the content of the book, it's on sales, it's on marketing, it's on how they, you know, what publicity they did in a whole load, the whole package. Yeah, and I think for for our listeners, Rachel, you've had an amazing journey, especially since your first print book yeah. in 2011. 2012, I had a, the first, no, 2011. Yeah. Yep, I had, a, I had a bit of a fossick around Rachel's website and we discussed earlier, Rachel's got 20 books published. Yes, oh, the 20th is coming out next June. So I've just submitted the 20th book, yeah. Yeah, and I think they may be uh, your Harlequin special editions, are they? 
Um, no, the 20th is actually a rural romance. So the Harlequin Special Edition will be 19, um, one of them, second Harlequin Special Edition, and the rural romance will be the 20th. Yeah. Now, we were talking about digital novellas, which is a subject very close to my heart right now because that's all I can manage. Uh, and Rachel has has published her digital novellas with Escape Publishing, Love Swept. Oh, gosh, I've forgotten. Thule, was it? Thule, yep. Thule, yeah. I, I said it was Thule the first time. I, yeah. I, uh, I that... always thought it was Thule. And between you and me, I think I like the sound of Thule better. Yeah, so we'll just keep re-recording this interview and eventually I'll learn how to pronounce that correctly. So we've got Harlequin in Australia and we've mentioned Karina Press. So for all of us out there who are wetting our toes and learning the craft through novellas, uh, Rachel was talking to me earlier and she's saying what a wonderful ground they are for honing the craft. Yes, I, I, I must admit when I first wrote my first novella, which I think was for Harlequin, The Kissing Season, um, I didn't know I could write a novella because I'm not good at short stories. I love reading short stories and I think it's very clever for people who can, you know, write that such a tight, you know, in, in, keep interest in that such a tight time. But I've never been a short writer. I ramble on as I do in real life probably. Um, and so I was a bit scared but I had to – I'm also one of those people that can't say no. So when the opportunity came up to – I think I actually wrote this novella for a Karina Press call-out for Christmas novellas. It didn't um, get, get picked for them but then Harlequin – kindly Australia decided to publish it and so it was a sort of a challenge to see if I could write a novella the first time. Uh, since then I've written a very short one, 10,000 words, uh, Escape escape Publishing, a novella called Casey which is part of the Down and Dusty series. Uh, that's my one of my sauciest books but I think I like novellas. I, I, if, if Ideally I would write a novella between each big book because I think it sort of gives you a reprieve from having to, as you said, the long books, you know, they take a lot more out of you. They take time, and so sometimes you feel like you're not achieving. Whereas if you write a novella, you can you can have something quite quickly. Um, I think you mentioned earlier in our other interview that you can write a novella quite quickly and feel like you're achieving something. And I think that's really important because we want to feel like we're achieving something. And I think really you should celebrate each little achievement along the way and writing a book is definitely an achievement so novellas can give you a taste of the whole package I suppose and a learning experience as you go learning how to edit and all that stuff yeah and next week uh, I've got another five-day business of writing mini series coming out we're talking about novellas with Tracy Peterson and Joanne Dannon and what I was talking about and what Rachel was referring to is that it takes a lot of energy to write a longer work. We were talking about literary fiction earlier and it takes me years to pull my literary fiction um, novels together. And I found Joanne challenged me to write one of these novellas and I, I could draft the thing in a weekend. That's amazing. Um, finishing, <laughs> I'm yeah, impressed. Finishing, yeah, finishing it and bringing it to any kind of standard is a much longer process, of course, and I ended up stringing three of these little novellas together. But there were things I could do and with concentrated, I guess, energy, yeah. you can keep the flow of the thing happening. Whereas with those and longer works, you've really got... Sorry? No, it's okay. Keep going. I think we need a slight delay. So for you go. <laughs> oh, that's because you're all the way over there in Perth. Yeah, it's taking I'm two so hours to reach here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were talking about novellas as a way uh, for new writers to to practice, to to um, practice not only doing the writing part of it, but also the the marketing and the selling and the building that career on a on a platform. Uh, those things take time, they take energy, and especially for indie publishers. Rachel, of course, is with um, Harlequin and she doesn't have to worry about those things. But the rest of us who have got writing businesses and we have to do it all, there's a, there's a lot involved and writing, and writing well is only one part of yeah. that story. And I think yeah. um, I just have to say there that although I'm not indie published, um, you know, these days publishers, we're all whatever you're published by, authors all have to do a lot more themselves, you know, I remember I went to a conference a few years ago and I know a lot of your listeners probably went to the same one, the Romance Writers Conference in, in um, Gold Coast, and Eloisa James was there and she spoke about how being a writer is 50% being a writer and 50% being a businesswoman. She's traditionally published and she said the businesswoman has to come first. So there is a lot more involved than just writing a book if you want to make um, a business or make a living out of it. 
But also about novellas, just one thing I want to say is I think they're great for readers too to discover you um, because they're might more likely to take a chance on a new author for that smaller price point. And so it's good to, yeah, lure people into your web with a novella. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. It, as you said, it's good for, I, I, as I said, writers where you can try different um, styles out. But for readers, uh, readers love those short pieces mm. because they can read them in a sitting, they can read them on the train, they can read them in between cooking dinner and running yeah. around with babies and all that and kind of like stuff. And feel like you're actually achieving something. I definitely had a period in my life where I was only reading shorter fiction. Um, it was Category Mills and Boone books because, A, I was targeting them, but also I felt discovered then that I could read them and finish them quite quickly when I had, you know, a young family, whereas any bigger book, it would take me up to two months and I just felt like uh, like a, fa- a reading failure, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's true. A lot of us, we don't even get to read a book anymore, let alone no. write a book. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Rachel's, uh, was telling me a little bit about her writing life earlier and I don't think we've had this conversation the second time but lazing around in your jammies all day and writing is a dream lifestyle for you? Yeah it was definitely I thought it was a really good idea to be able to work from home all day you know and I have to um, get dressed and uh, go out and you know but I think it it is a dream and a lot of people say to me, oh, you're living my dream, you get to work from home and and there's so many advantages from working at home apart from the fact that you can wear whatever you like or not get dressed. Um, But the other advantages are flexibility for family and things like that. But saying that, when writing becomes a job, uh, I think it's really hard. Sometimes you have to really make a big effort to keep the love because, you know, this initially was my passion and it was my hobby and something I did in illicit hours, you know, when the kids were sleeping or at night. And then suddenly now it's something I do every day when I because I have to, because I have contracts. And so I think writers, we really need to find the balance between we did this initially. I didn't do this to make money. I, you know, would, I thought, hey, it would be great if I could earn a living from my writing, but that wasn't why I wanted to write to start with. I wanted to write because I loved I love the experience and I love books and and so now I need to I think it's really it's a dangerous thing when it becomes when your passion becomes your job I think Elizabeth Gilbert talked about this on a podcast I listened to recently um, that she never wanted her her passion to have to pay for her life she'd rather her other jobs pay for her passion because you know it's really hard to keep the love I think in something when you have to do it so yeah I don't know if I've gone off t- um, tangent there but I think. No. We need to really make sure, remember why we did things in the first place when it becomes a job. Yeah, and I, I actually think you're not so much off tangent, but you're, you're totally on tangent because as as writers, yeah, we have to learn to, to get that balance. I know I find myself um, playing around with my podcast for a couple of hours in the morning, then racing off to school, doing my Facebook Live on the way to school, coming home wow. and locking, yeah, locking myself back in the study. And my younger daughter in particular, who's 14, not yeah. 13 anymore, uh, she sort of says, but mummy, what about us? And you yeah. think, well, yeah, it is a bit of That's a challenge, isn't hard it? Thing. Getting the balance between family life and I think the thing is with writing as well, it is uh, a career that you're constantly doing. I'm doing it in the shower. I'm thinking about my, you know, next characters when I'm hanging the washing. Um, you never, you never stop. And because of social media these days, you know, we're always, we're always on it. We're all, I'm always, you know, checking my Facebook page, replying to readers and things like that. So it is sort of a matter of getting a balance. But, you know, you also made me think of one thing. You sound like you're achieving an amazing amount, you know, doing this great, brilliant podcast and still writing and having a family and working full time. And I actually think well, think that when I was working more, we had a supermarket up till last year, uh, and obviously before I was published, I was squeezing my writing into, you know, hours here and there. In some ways, I was a lot more productive. So, you know, um, it sounds like it's um, a wonderful thing to be able to write all day and, you know, not have any other distractions. But in some ways, I think you can achieve just as much um, if you do what you're doing and, you know, just compartmentalise things. So, yeah. I have I have this fantasy that I can stay at home all day and uh, Rachel and I were talking about, um, I think we are talking about Coke, chocolate yep. and wine. Uh, we know what time of the day it is. Yeah, we're, I'm we're close to the Diet Coke, Coke fridge now than when I was teaching. I couldn't just drink Diet Coke in the classroom. <laughs> 
yeah. Now, Rachel was also an English teacher at one stage yeah. and then she wrote Don't Hold That Against Her, <laughs> whereas I'm, I'm quite proudly and openly an English teacher who's desperately trying to give it up to stay at home in my jammies and write all day. You're probably a uh, much better Rachel, English teacher than I was. I was terrible. I'm a terrible speller. I'm not that great at grammar. I was in the generation where they didn't really teach grammar at school, so I think it's safer for Australians that I'm no longer in the classroom. <laughs> I've got to tell you, I see some huge businesses out there, online businesses with people making millions of dollars, Mm -hmm. and I look at the copy on their websites and I just cringe. I know. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'm one of those people that actually doesn't pick up necessarily the the spelling mistake on the sign. My mum will always see, you know, the apostrophe in the wrong place and, and things like that. I must admit I'm not like that, but what makes me cringe is just when it's so badly written that you can't understand really what they're trying to say. So, yeah, yes. I think a lot of those big businesses could do with hiring some some writers, <laughs> actual writers. Yeah, well, one of, I've had my website overhauled and redesigned and my designer has put up some lovely copy on the front of my, uh, I guess, on my homepage yep. and it's got errors in it. And I'm oh, saying no. to my daughter, we've really got to get in there and fix that. And she's going, well, how do we do that? I said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> but we need to- um, so it's a well, we do. We need to learn how to do it and, and everything is a learning curve. Yes, and definitely. you made the interesting comment that you're a writer and obviously a prolific writer, but you've also got to be a businesswoman. Uh, and I know you've got a husband and I know you've got three little boys and the most beautiful dog. Not that your mm-hmm. boys and your husband are beautiful as well. And She's I a think there was a dog. cat in there somewhere. Yes, we yeah, well, was I had a cat, cat in there? recently, um, but she died. he died recently, unfortunately. He, he was my beautiful boy that I had for a long time. But my mum's cat lives with us. Sorry, I can't speak at the moment. My mum's cat lives with us at the moment, so yeah, I've always got to have a cat around. I'm actually more of a cat person than a dog person. Yeah, and if you're wondering why Rachel's voice is running out now, we've actually been talking for 20 minutes, but we've been talking for 18 minutes the last time as well. So we've actually been talking for 14 minutes. This may be the first podcast that comes in uh, under the hour mark simply because Rachel and I had half a conversation. (laughs) Yeah, the trouble is, Rachel, I'm guessing that everybody wants to hear your story. Uh, Judging by the Facebook popularity of certainly your latest book, uh, and we were talking about shelfies I, I scroll through I quite often use social media to research um, I guess my the people coming onto the podcast because on the social media you get some wonderful stuff Rachel yeah yes. uh, I found the quote from Rachel and I have read it to her once, but I'm going to read it again. And it was, if I managed to survive the rest of the week, I would like my straight jacket in hot pink and my helmet to sparkle. Now, Rachel, you were telling me that a friend of yours wrote that. Yeah, well, a friend of mine shared it. I don't know where it came from originally. That's the thing with social media, isn't it? But yeah, she's had a crazy busy week. And that I think I shared that when I was working towards the trying to finish the last few chapters of my book which I've just submitted so I was feeling a little bit like it was never going to end and so yeah I think that was a fabulous quote I loved it. I I just had to write it down because I loved it as well Mm -hmm. and Rachel's book that's just come out is called The Art of Keeping Secrets. Um, Now you're mentioning that you've just submitted another one and I'm very very curious but let's do The Art of Keeping Secrets first. Sure. Um, We read a I read a book review, and I think I haven't discussed that on this recording, a book <sighs> review by Debbie, Debbish.com, Debbish, something yep. a bit more real, yeah, something a bit more real than Happily Ever After. So I'm intrigued. Uh, would, I know you can't tell us oh, too much about bet. it, but you can probably tell us, tell us how long you took, it took to write it and how many edits you go through and I how really proud you are of to, it. I um, take more time to work out when I, how long I take to do things um I think the majority of my books probably take about four months this is a big one to write uh the first draft I I am not I hate rewriting things I'm not good at probably because I'm so lazy (laughs) and I just want it to write the first time so I do edit kind of as I go you know I'll always read the first chapter the the last chapter of the day before uh sorry I'm totally not speaking well today I, I will always read the last chapter you know that I've written the day before when I sit down to write and I'll tweak things as I go while I'm doing that. Um, so my first draft is pretty polished and I submit that quite soon to my publisher without going into too many um, structural edits or anything of my own. Uh, so Art of Keeping Secrets uh, would have taken me yeah, about, about four months to write and then it went through probably another month of edits with my publisher. Uh, and 
that is my second women's fiction title. Uh, you want me to tell you a bit about what it's about without trying to give away spoilers? Uh, I know so, it's got a beautiful cover with oh, a bird cage and a I've been so blessed with covers. I really have been lucky with the cover fairies. And I do believe that's uh, attributed to my success so far. I think, you know, especially in those early years, covers are so important. We all judge books by covers, whether we say we do or not. And I've been blessed with great covers right from the start. So, uh, but that one is, yeah, probably one of my favourites. So the Art, of, the Art of Keeping Secrets is about secrets, as the title kind of says, uh, but it's also about friendship. I wanted to write a book about celebrating women's friendship and how just, you know, you think you know someone really well uh, some, through either in a friendship or a marriage, but often you don't actually know someone as well as you think and that all of us are hiding, have skeletons in our closet and, you know, we're hiding things from our friends, people we're closest to, maybe consciously or maybe unconsciously, and sometimes we've even got secrets from ourselves. And so that was sort of the concept of where I, I, I went from. Each of the three women have a secret. Two of them are bigger than the others. And yeah, I won't tell you what they are because of spoilers. But that um, review that you said from Debbie from Debish blog, um, that was particularly lovely to read because she has apparently followed me for a long time on Twitter and I've integrated with her on Facebook and interacted, sorry, I've lost my vocabulary today, (laughs) Um, blaming sickness. Anyway, I've interacted with her on uh, social media, but she's never actually read any of my books. So she decided to give it a shot with, uh, because she said she doesn't really, she's not a romance reader. So she decided to take a risk on the art of keeping secrets. And that is probably my least romantic book. Uh, The Patterson Girls, which was also women's fiction rather than straight romance, still has, I I think, um, very strong romantic elements. There's four sisters in that story and they all have uh, love stories that, you know, throughout some are more romantic than others um they don't all have a happy ever after in that book which I guess is the difference um between my romances and my women's fiction and this book definitely it's not that I think it's an uplifting ending uh but it's definitely not your traditional happy ever after that you get in a romance so all three it's last year my publicist who I was traveling with coined the term life lit as a different word than women's fiction to use for this genre and I think that is quite apt and the thing is these books are about real life you know they're contemporary they're contemporary stories about issues that all of us deal with everything from you know relationships to motherhood parent parenthood not just motherhood um infertility grief anger illness and all those things sort of come into my into my book this one yeah and it's interesting that you said your publisher Came, oh, sorry. Your publicist came up. Publicist came up with a new yeah. uh, phrase called life lit. Because I was talking to Annie Seaton, and her publicist or her publisher, someone came up with uh, a new title for her her books as well. Her Kakadu Sunset yeah. and maybe her Daintree Sunrise, and it was something to do with eco, eco, ecological stuff and oh, um, I environmental. Think eco, eco lit or something was it? Was... Yeah, eco lit, something yeah. like that. And All it's interesting have. that, but. But basically, people recognise from the covers what what the, the books are going books. to and be about. And that's why a cover is so important, isn't it? Because you recognise by a book you like to read, and if you then pick up a book that you think you like to read and it's totally different from the cover, then you can get readers can get quite angry, and I think rightly so. You know, if you pick up a book that you think is going to be a crime story and it ends up being a, a romantic comedy, you're probably going to be a little a little annoyed. So, but I think the life lit term and um, as I said maybe the eco-lit, all these things, whether they take off or not, the reason the life-lit sort of came about was because um, the new book and the Patterson Girls and now Art of Keeping Secrets was in that genre that we all know as women's fiction. But I have so many male readers, I can't give you a quantity exactly, and I'm sure the percentage is a lot less than the female readers, but I do have a number of male readers and I know my friends who write, you know, romance and women's fiction and romantic space, they all have male readers too. Some of them are quite vocal. Um, you've probably heard of Len Clump, who is a diehard supporter of rural romance. He's, he's been in newspaper articles um, and he's come to the Australian Romance Readers Convention. And so when we were talking about the publicity for the Patterson Girls and, you know, it has to be for the for the booksellers and marketers, it's women's fiction because then they know where to place it. But, I, you know, we sort of started discussing the point that Women's fiction, there's two There's two things wrong with women's fiction, I think. One is it sort of makes it, oh, well, it sort of belittles it. It's just women's fiction, you know. It's not, not anything important. It's just, you know, domestic-type stories and stuff. So it's just for women. Uh, but also it, it sort of makes re- men who want to read those stories feel that they're kind of 
not masculine in some ways and they're not you know they they sort of feel they have to explain themselves or, or justify why they're reading these books so I think that was why we discussed you know women's fiction really it's a term that I think passed it and we should find other terms for describing literature yeah and people are trying as well uh, Rachel has recently I think in August attended a feminist writers festival in Melbourne yeah. now I had to write that one down Rachel because I, I'd love to hear all about what what's the difference between a feminist writers festival and another writers well festival? it was the inaugural feminist writers festival so you know your guess was because mine and I just thought um one it was a trip to Melbourne so I totally thought that was fun and my friend uh, Lisa Island was going to go as well so it was an excuse to spend a night with her in a hotel and have a good chat beforehand but I was I was curious because I didn't really know either so what it was was basically um, it was an offshoot of the Melbourne Writers Festival and a bunch of uh, mostly I suppose literary authors you know we have that distinction between genre fiction and literary fiction there was a lot of poets and there was um, a lot of authors who have written yeah, literary, literary fiction rather than genre. Uh, and they were just talking about uh, everything from can, can genre fiction like romance be feminist? Uh, what does it, a feminist text look like? Uh, you know, how are women portrayed in our you know, contemporary works of fiction and things like that? Just about how motherhood's portrayed? It was just sort of general discussions about women, women and how they relate to literature and genre fiction. Yeah, and it's interesting from where I'm sitting, like I think we're up to, uh, I think I've recorded about 30 podcasts now, yeah. and I've been having some really interesting, com- that's because I like talking to people. Yeah, and the thing that has struck me the most is the variety of authors who are strong, intelligent women, uh, like yourself, like Annie, like Sherry, like lots of people that I've spoken to, Joanne Dannon, uh, the list goes on, Amy Andrews. Yep. Uh, the thing that strikes me the most is the variety in the styles of writing, the variety of, we call it genre fiction, but the depth and breadth of writing. I've, I've been exploring, you know, what erotica means yep. and the difference between sweet whether we tip into women's fiction and we tip into more literary writing. And the boundaries are just not or just don't seem to be there. They seem to blur a lot more now, which is great because it opens up spaces for indie authors to come yeah. in, whereas some of the traditional publishers want want those boundaries to remain. Um, but obviously those borders are breaking down simply because even your publicists are trying to uh, slot your books into different yeah. different categories, if you like. Are think, you finding that? Yeah, I think the John, you know, those boundaries, I suppose, or boxes have been there because purely for a marketing reason, and that's why traditionally traditional publishers have, you know, been able to take less risks than the indie publishers because they've had to be able to sell them to bookshops, and bookshops want to be able to put them on a shelf that fits, you know, so that they can direct erotica readers one way or crime readers another way. But you know. Even I think there's there's always been a huge you know I've lost my vocabulary today but there's always been a huge array of different types of stories in each of those each of those genres um, but I think yeah I think it's indie publishing probably that's making the changes you know and sort of forcing the publishers to sort of also look at different different types of genres to publish because with indie publishing. You know, and even not just indie publishing, I suppose, but digital publishing a little bit before that, they could suddenly start publishing things that maybe wouldn't have um, got so much attention from a bookseller because they couldn't know where to place it. So I think, yeah, it's it's slowly changing and who knows what type of genres we'll have in the future. But I think that, yeah, everyone, you know, it's I can see why we need these terms because we still need to be able to say, oh, I write this type of fiction so somebody understands. But at the same time, within yeah, women's fiction, there's such an array of, of voices and it's really the, the writer and the voice and the story that, that makes it different to the next story. So we could really um, have a million different <laughs> labels, I suppose. Yeah, and, and your journey as a, as a writer, as, as you gain confidence and, I guess, become that international author or international best-selling author that we're, we're seeing with you now, uh, I was speaking to this beautiful lady and the interview will go up next week in the business of writing and her name's Jules Horn and she writes from Scotland. 
um, from okay. the Scottish borders, I believe she was. And she her talk was mainly on creativity and she's a lecturer or an associate professor with Open Learning and she lectures on creativity. And she was talking about indie authors as being influencers. And I'm wondering whether what you and I are talking about today somehow taps into that because as as I said now, an international best-selling author, you get to, I guess, make some choices that you perhaps weren't able to make when you first started out about what you want to write about and what direction you want your future writing to go. Are you finding that you're having more power with your voice? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I do think you're right that indie authors, you know, paving the way in, in some ways because publishers then seeing that things that they wouldn't have looked at before are actually very popular, so they're maybe opening their minds up a bit more. Me personally, I've well never with my publishers. So it depends on the publisher and the type of book. So I suppose when I've been writing category romance, so to save my latest books in the special edition, and when I was trying to target Mills and Boone, you know the confines of what I needed to write were more strictly sort of put out there. Like I had to, you know, say when I was writing for Mills and Boone, I was targeting a line called Modern Heat. There had to be a certain amount of sexiness in there. You couldn't, um, you know. There was just certain things you couldn't couldn't do, uh, and that was just because of the line I was targeting. With Harlequin Australia and my rural romances and my women's fiction, I've never really been um, – no one's ever given me a prescription for what I can or can't write, uh, but I think that's very individual for different authors and publishers, their experience that they work. But saying that, I have had interesting heated discussions with my publisher and my editor when they have wanted – it's usually post-writing a book, um, so say with the Patterson Girls, we both – disagreed strongly on one plot point and I always I always believe you know I, when I've given revisions or something I'm thinking and I don't I disagree I, I sometimes wonder am I disagreeing because it's right for the story or am I disagreeing because I'm too lazy and I don't want to think of another week Ray you know to write that but for this particular book um, I, I thought a lot about how, what the publisher wanted me to do and how I could change it and still maintain, you know, the essence of what I wanted the book to be about, and it just wouldn't work. So in the end, I stood my ground, and in the end, the publisher said, "Well, it's your book, and, um, you know, do do what you think." And so, but I don't know if that's just my experience, or if, you know, I think a relationship between a publisher and an editor, or so publisher and author, or an editor and author, it just varies so greatly. So everyone's experience is very different. Yeah, and yet you said something earlier about you've just finished another book and it will be out mid next year yep, or later next year. Is that May right? Next year, the talk, talk of the town, the next real romance. Yep. Yeah, and do you find like that to me even for traditional publishing is a fairly quick turnaround because uh, normally it used to take even longer than yeah, that. Yeah, I find that I all guess. the publishers seem to be going a bit quicker these days. I don't know. Maybe that's because you know, with indie publishing and self publishing. They have to. They, maybe they have to work quicker. Like I've had friends whose books uh, are coming out early next year, and they're still, you know, they're just doing the edits for it now. So I think things are moving a lot yeah. faster in Australia. I don't know if it's the same overseas, but I think the traditional publishers in Australia seem to be moving faster in scheduling. Yeah, because yeah, I was talking to Jen J. McLeod about it, and she writes one book a year, but it only takes her three or four months to write the book. But then the turnaround through the turnaround, editing process yep. and getting it published. Take, takes a huge amount of time. And I asked her would she consider um, trying a hand at in, indie publishing yeah. and she said no way, she's still well looked after. <laughs> and I'm guessing the same is going to be for you because you're beautifully looked after. I am very and well. I keep hearing, And I keep hearing this word lazy and I'm thinking how can a woman write so many books and, and be everywhere on social media, call herself lazy? Oh, I'm lazy in terms of rewriting and editing. Um, so... You know, that to me, I mean, I do it, I suppose, but such that's not the enjoyable part. I like getting the first draft down. Oh, I used to say I liked it. But these days I think um, I I feel I feel like I'm lazy, but then I look back and, as you said, I look back sometimes and I think, wow, how have I written that much in that time? So maybe I'm not lazy. But I do I I do feel um, that I'm a bit lazy in, term, in, in, some, <laughs> in some ways, yeah. Yeah, I think we've all got all got our little secrets. I'm in. I have had all these boxes of clothes um, sitting around the house, 
and because we've been everything and I've just piled them in the middle of the yeah. floor and I thought I said to my daughters I can't be bothered sorting any of that let's just toss the lot out and it's it's liberating Rachel yeah. I'm going yay it's That's gone what, I mean you haven't wasted time <laughs> yeah you know but, yeah and so maybe I'm maybe like you I'm, I, maybe it's not a lazy thing it's just the fact that there's so much we have to do so it's a matter of prioritizing what you think yeah <laughs> what deserves you to be a little more optimistic, put a little bit more effort in and what doesn't deserve it. Yeah. And actually, I, I do believe that, Rachel, everybody, you need to know this, Rachel doesn't like ironing either. Uh, I don't even have an iron. So I have, you know, I remember last, it was last year when we had our supermarket, the receptions from the school came in in the evening, like early evening, and I was uh, behind the checkout and uh, she said to me, oh, I've got to go home and do all my ironing. And I said, I don't iron. I said, and you can probably tell by the boys' uniform and stuff like that. She goes, no, that's a problem. You can't tell. And I know it, so I know it's a waste of time. Um, but, you know, I can't help it. So I'm, I'm glad that, yeah, maybe that's why I think I'm lazy because I don't know how people fit ironing in and stuff like that. I just, I could not fit it in. <laughs> and yeah, you probably can tell with some of my clothes, uh, but I just tend to buy stuff that doesn't need ironing. And if I do, I quickly realise that I'm not going to wear that much. <laughs> Yeah, and get yeah, get rid of it. Get rid of it. That's the answer. Everybody, throw out all yeah. your clothes. It throw makes life so much easier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> throw out your kids. Get rid of the dogs. Yeah, yeah look, the, we could go on forever. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> girls rule. Okay, if anyone was out there and anyone listening um, is interested in rural romance, because that's something that's really taken off here in Australia, is is that how you? Uh, deliberately set out to to write your novels? Did you want to be a rural romance author? Um, I didn't initially. As I said, I targeted Mills and Boone and it went because that wasn't going well, a friend of mine suggested, why don't you try your hand at rural romance? And I thought, no, I'm a bit of a fraud because yeah, I'm not a farmer or a farmer's wife, um, but I was living in a small rural community. So I decided I'll give it a shot. Uh, I, I still for a few years felt like a bit of a fraud because, you know, there was authors like Fleur MacDonald, Rachel Treasure, Nicole Alexander, Fiona Palmer, Jennifer Schooler, who their books were so farm or issue orientated and stuff like that, whereas my rural romances are more, yeah, about the small town community and, you know, things that happened there rather than sort of the environmental land issues and stuff like that. So I felt like a bit of a fraud, but I think rural romance has grown into a genre that's very broad. I always describe it sort of as a spectrum and at one end of the spectrum we have those early authors who started writing about the land and their farming experiences and most of them do have lived in farming backgrounds or have farming families um, and have a lot of experience in that so you can understand when you read their books they know exactly what they're talking about and then the other end of the spectrum is more the, the romance side of it I think um, and I'm sort of probably towards the romance end more and I think rural romance in Australia I mean apparently it's still selling really well I know a lot of myself and a lot of the other rural authors were wondering you know there's so many rural authors out there when's when's the demand going to die down but the publishers still say they want them the bookshops still say they're selling and the libraries still say they can't keep them on shelves and I think one of the reasons is not necessarily the rural aspect but it's the romance um and I mean, small t they're small town romances. That's how I see them. And um, that's been popular with village romances in UK for a long time. And, you know, America has so many small town romance authors and people love those small town books. And I think that's because a small town or a small rural community is like a microcosm of the greater society. You can see so many different characters and deal with a whole load of different issues in that small kind of space. So I think rural romance is a very broad title. Again, one of those um, tags that we need to... Um, but saying that, I went to... Last year I did a, a reader's workshop. It was a lot of fun in uh, McKinley in Queensland. Uh, and it was out near... Uh, Captain, where, where, where um, Crocodile Dundee was set, near there. It was fabulous. It was right the most outback I've ever been. Um, but the people that came to my readers sort of it was it was called get back to reading and it was sort of like a celebration of reading and it was back a big book club for a few hours and we just talked about books that we loved you know why we read and a lot of those people came because they'd read my books and I just asked them what is it you like about rural romance is it the romance or is it the rural aspect and they said there's definitely the romance is the aspect that's the more important to them so I think that's very interesting 
Yeah, I think Helen Young uh, just came back from uh, uh, something out at Winton, um, yep. so that's probably a similar kind of thing. Yeah. But I do notice that, and it's something I probably should have mentioned at the beginning, that you are currently Australia's number one rural romance author. Well, apparently last year I sold the most rural romance books, so I think that's how it um, – and. And probably, I have to admit, I had two rural romances out last year. So when you have two books out, it gives you chances of being the number one seller. <laughs> you know, you got higher chances than someone who only has one book out there. But yeah, I'm I'm selling good numbers in rural romance, um, and so I'm very lucky there. Yeah. yeah, and I adopted that attitude when I put out um, two podcasts a week instead of one podcast yeah. a week. I thought, well, what I don't make getting numbers, I'll get up in double, doubling up on the um, content. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a mathematician or anything, but it's basic maths, I suppose. Yeah, so watch this space, everybody. Today I've got um, Rachel Johns. On Thursday I've got the beautiful, uh, oh, is it Jen, Jenny Jones? Oh, Jenny Jones, also from WA. Please. Yes, she's your friend. Yep. Yeah, so I've got Jen coming on on Thursday and I had a mind blank. I forgot your name, Jen. Sorry about that. Uh, WA has a lot of great authors. Um, I've got a few listed here and I think you've mentioned a couple of them, Sarah Foster, Lily yep. Malone and Fiona Palmer. Yep. Oh, I know. Uh, WA, yeah, and WA is certainly big. It, it takes up, for those of you who are listening from overseas, Western Australia is the size of the three eastern states of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. Yeah. So it's a huge expanse. A lot of it is mining territory. A lot of it is uh, real outback. We go from the Kimberley yeah. Ranges up the top down to the beautiful coast of Esperance and Albany. Yeah, very uh, Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, my novel set out in Norseman in WA in near Kalgoorlie and it's out where we've got skimpies. And oh, yeah, where, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, real men are real men and, you know, all that Definitely, kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and minors are minors. My husband's family is from women, women Cross, in... so not too far from ah. that area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, I won't say what the women normally are out there. <laughs> um, and we're moving right along. And your uh, Rachel's, the last thing I want to talk about is, again, it's your Outback books. It's You've got a trilogy out called, it's set at Bunyip mm-hmm. Bay and it's Outback Dreams, Outback Blaze and Outback Ghost. And like any good trilogy, there's now a fourth book called Outback Sisters. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that, that, but you're right. Isn't it true? Any good trilogy, there's so many times you have the extra. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? How did that happen? How did the extra one happen? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're going to end up with, because I noticed uh, a lot of people have, um, and I'm thinking of our top international indie authors yep. now, uh, they continue to write six, seven, eight, nine, ten books in a series because people want to keep reading about the same and I, setting. I keep getting requests, everyone's, you know, once more of Bunyip Bay, and I have definitely not closed that door, um, but it's it's a matter of fact that I want to... I've got a couple of characters from that series that I, you know, they're in my head, I'm thinking, but I'm just waiting for the right the right story to come up for them. So there might be more Bunyip Bay, there might not, but interesting how the fourth book came about was that exactly what you said. Readers kept going to me, oh, we want to know what happened to this person and more they want to know, does some, everyone get married and have babies? People seem very invested in that. They, you know, want to know that. And uh, I always thought, well, I've given them their happy ever after. You know, they've been through enough crap and drama throughout the books that I'm not going to revisit those characters again because then I would have to give them in another book more. I'd have to break them up or someone die or horrible things happen to them. And I like the characters by then and I've given them enough rubbish. So without back sisters, because there was such a demand for, and I think you can never know how successful a series or a book's going to be. And so it's quite surprising to me that how much everyone loved the Bunyip Bay series. Um, and I did want to honour that and give my readers who have been really supportive back. So everyone was wondering about another book and there was sisters, some sisters in the first series called Frankie and Simone. And I was at a tour, I went on tour with Fiona Palmer a couple of years ago and we were at a talk actually in Dongara, which is where, the, which is where my fictional town is sort of based. Um, and we're up there and someone was saying, oh, what about Frankie and Simone? And then Fiona Palmer and I, basically brainstormed the whole of that book in, in a trip from Dongara to another inland um, town called Kalani. So without her, that book's dedicated to her um, and the readers basically, without them I, I probably wouldn't have had another fourth, a fourth story. So, yeah, it was, it's interesting how these things come about. 
Yeah, and I think that's one thing that indie publishers are very, very good at as well. Uh, series are a great way to hook your readers and keep them interested, build the community. I, I started reading, I guess, Nora Roberts, and I loved, I yep. think it was the Quinn Brothers, and I had to read everyone's story, and I've now got them in a in a set, set, I think. Yep. Yeah, uh, Nora Roberts, I guess, is the first one that I loved because her writing was very immediate, it was very modern, yeah, very it was very fast-paced. yeah. Yeah, so I, I really like that. I heard that. her speak and I think... last year and it was fabulous to listen to how she goes about actually when you asked me before about why am I so prolific and I actually don't consider myself very prolific compared to some authors but I actually thought of her and I didn't actually mention at the time but since you've brought her up I might just say that when she, she did her talk and people say to her all the time, you know, how can you write so many books? Are you sure that it's not somebody else writing them for you? And she said the only way I do is every day I sit down in my chair and I write, and that's that's the only way it happens. You know, I I have a word count. I, I'm not going to – I think it was maybe 2,000 a day that she aims for, and that's what she does. And whether they're bad or good, she sits down and she writes. And so she said that's the only way. There's no secret. <laughs> yeah, and one of the very first Romance Writers Conferences I went to, and I mentioned with um, – I can't remember whether it was Annie or Amy, and it was with Nora Roberts, uh, and it was 20-something years yeah. ago. It was down in Sydney. And that woman was amazing then, and she's still, still writing now. And I, she puts out her mysteries under another name, I believe. Baby Rob. Yep, that's the one. Yep. And the first person when I started my podcast is I thought I'm going to have Nora Roberts yeah. on, and I did. I did email her, but her publicist said no. Uh, and I said, as I said, just ask her; she'll come on. She'll say, remember. Maybe me. keep asking. <laughs> yeah, no, they can't <laughs> I say no. Well, I tried Leanne Moriarty as well, and your writing has been um, likened to Leanne Moriarty. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, but her publicist said no as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to publicists anymore. I'm going no. straight to the writers. <laughs> I think that's the way to go about it, yeah, because often instead publicists yeah. probably don't even ask these people. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think they do. Um, so anyone out there who's um, following me on Facebook or you find that I'm liking you on Facebook, I'm probably stalking you so that I can get you on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Now, just to wrap up, um, because Rachel and I have now been talking, even though the podcast's only been going for 50 minutes, we've actually been talking for an hour and a half, and I'm, I'm getting, getting tired, so I do right? think how your throat is, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. Now, Rachel will be at the Bundaberg Writers' Festival next weekend. We have had that conversation. It's really exciting. It's only a few hours from here in Brisbane. Then she's coming down to Brisbane just for a day. Yep. Um, and I'd put my name down for that, but apparently I have to win my spot, so I'm still waiting to hear I'm that gonna, one. Um, Email my uh, publisher in a minute and find out when that's going to be announced. So, all right, yeah. So watch this space, guys. Um, we'll Facebook it and say who gets to see Rachel in in Brisbane. Um, but in Bundaberg, you're doubly lucky because you can actually go to the Writers Festival. I didn't even know Bundaberg had a Writers Festival. Uh, yeah, or there's a library great talk that Rachel going to. And my, actually, my publicist who I talk, spoke about um, coining the term life lit. She's actually going to be at the Bundaberg Writers Festival as well, doing a, a big masterclass on. Uh, author publicity and how, they, how you can get publicity for yourself and she's fantastic so Jackie Arthur so I, if you can get to Bundy next not this weekend coming up but the following weekend strongly recommend it or oh, Jackie Arthur is it yes yeah okay Rachel we're going to ask Rachel to ask Jackie Arthur to come on the pub um on top oh, podcast she would because love we to, would I'm love sure. to know I'll ask yeah um, I think Oh, you're wonderful um, because I think all every author wants to talk about publicity. Every other author wants to know how yep. to get people to to read our books. Um, and I noticed, Rachel, you mention a lot, um, you, you attend readers' festivals and you look after your readers and you nurture your readers. And I'm guessing that's one of the biggest secrets just before we go. And that's probably because, like, like you, I like talking, <laughs> and I so I enjoy um, talking to people. And I, you know, people talk about social media being a chore. Some people find it is. Um, I love interacting with the readers on Facebook because it's such a buzz to know that I'm I'm sort of not alone on the computer. That there are actually people out there reading my stuff and and actually being more excited about my stuff than me sometimes, which is quite. Um, and I think especially you know I look at some big name authors who who don't do any you know they don't reply on Facebook and I can understand they probably don't have the time and then they probably don't need to. But I enjoy it. So I think if you if you enjoy doing stuff like that, it comes across. Um, and people realise that you're being genuine about actually liking talking to them. Um, and so that can definitely be a help. I think if you don't enjoy it, it can be a hindrance, if you know what I mean, <laughs> because you can, you can tell. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I've made all my friends in the last month on Facebook. I, I love um, that I can actually find all the people who who like the same things that yeah. I do, like you, Rachel, and all the writers that I've been speaking to. I found this amazing group of people. Now, I was married and living in mining camps for 20 yeah. years, and I never saw anyone. or met anyone. Mm. Yeah. Now that I'm now that I'm single and young <laughs> again, I get to play with everybody I want to. And uh, I the think that's I'm one of the do, benefits of social media. You know, there's a lot of non. Sorry. No, no, I agree with you. The benefits of social media is you oh, get and also, to. We're not alone anymore. Whereas writers, people still say occasionally, oh, writing you know, quite a solitary career, isn't it? And I suppose it is in that you don't actually necessarily see anyone face to face during the day, you know, all the time. But I don't feel alone at all. I've talked to people on, as you said, Facebook, um, readers and writers. I've, I've got friends on email that I email, you know, a hundred times a day to my writing friends probably and not just about writing anymore but I don't find writing to be solitary at all and I suppose that's because of the age we're in. Yeah, and I notice um, there are some writers here in Brisbane who I'd, I – look, I would have loved to catch up with Victoria Black these holidays and I promised her that I would, but time beats us every time. Yeah. Whereas we can flick a comment off on Facebook that's and say, true. hi, I miss you, all that kind of stuff, and it's it's good enough. That is so true, yeah. Um, it's hard to actually yeah, whereas I think that, right, like, connect because you've got to schedule everyone together. Yeah. Well, in the olden days on the phone, you could still only ring one person at a time. On this Facebook, you can have a conversation with 10, yeah. 15 people or or like people like you, you get 100 likes on, yeah. on your thing or something like that. And it's all the people that we know. I thought, I know that person, yeah. I know that person. And, and then That's the thing. I think the readers like now, I know I mentioned Len Clump, who's a, a male rural romance reader before, but, you know, he's now friends with other ones of my readers, you know, who they've never met, but they're, they're friends on Facebook now and they interact. Um, and, you know, so I think... The social media creates you know, communities where like-minded people can come together. They might never have met in real life. Yeah, and I think that's uh, particularly important. Again, Jen Jones and I were talking about it. Uh, not Jen, sorry, Jen McLeod and I were talking Jens. about it. <laughs> oh, too many Jens. Too and many. Jones, I can't get the names right. Too. I'm tired. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Give me more chocolate. It's holidays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, what was I talking about? Out in the regions, you don't. There are not bookshops no. uh, on every corner. There might be a big W where you can, like, you know, they'll pack them on the shelves for a few months and then the books disappear. Yep. On social media, we remember our authors and we say, and we can go and buy the backlist and we can do all those things that you can't do in a physical bookshop no. as much anymore. Sorry, you there? Oh, I think I lost you for a second there. <laughs> we, uh, Rachel and I have had it, everybody. We're, we're both exhausted. Uh, yeah, I'm going to – I put a picture up of a Rachel cup earlier on Facebook and I'm going to buy myself a Rachel – can I buy a Rachel cup? Uh, you can. I'm going I'll, to buy I'll myself send you a, one because, you know, you deserve it. So Yes, and I think I should have a Rachel cup. And then I'm going to but I'm going to make a Melinda cup. Ah, oh, cool. And I'll put cool. my Rachel cup and my Melinda cup side by side, and I'll have Coke in one and wine in the ah, other. That sounds perfect. Well, you <laughs> you send me your um, snail mail address, and I'll post you a mug. I'm I'm towing my caravan over there at Christmas. I'll come oh, and pick it up in you? person. Oh, exciting! Yeah, so it's all very exciting. That's why I'm throwing out all my things, so I can yeah, fit back in the caravan. Sense. Yep, there's not much room yeah. in the caravan. Rachel. You have to prioritize. Yeah, Rachel, you've been a wonderful sport. The sound hasn't been as good as it could be. Um, I think I've left my email on, so there's been the occasional ping where emails have come through. Rachel's got storms happening over there and she's battled on regardless. Um, we've got two podcasts, um, but we're only going to post one of them. I'll put this up right away, Rachel. Uh, so if you want to find Rachel, it's over at um, racheljohns.com and it's R-A-C-H-A-E-L. Yes. And it, it looks beautiful. I'd actually put R-A-C-H-E-L and I thought that looks so boring, whereas I love that, Rachel. It's got an old-fashioned tinge to it, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, Rachel's got a special edition coming out next year. She's got, we heard she's got her new rural romance coming out. She's just got this most beautiful uh, secrets, the art of keeping secrets um that has come out. I've bought myself a copy. I went back and bought the Patterson Girls. Uh, I love anything Australian. I love anything, um, certainly rural Australia, because that's where I've spent 20 years. And I'm getting such a great collection of Australian authors, uh, which is really, really exciting. They're only on my Kindle, um, but I get to look at the covers because the covers.
and they're great in a tent because they light up. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good luck in Bundaberg. Good luck when you come to Brisbane. I'll certainly wave to you as you fly over. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I'll, as I said, I'll stand out front and throw pink streamers at you. Rachel, is, have we covered anything? Is there anything you want to finish off with? Yeah, no, look, we've survived very well, although we're both starting to go stargazy. Look, everybody, thank you. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, download this on iTunes, send Rachel a, a big hug via Facebook or however else you get in touch with Rachel, it'd be great. Uh, and definitely go out and buy her books. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, thank you from Rider on the Road. Bye.